This is Sight for Sore Eyes. I'm Oyofe Adeshina. In the last episode, I spoke about how inclusion, equity, and diversity are all essential for a state of inclusive excellence and well-being. Diversity, just bring people in for diversity's sake. So you got, you got all colors of the rainbow here, right? We should feel good about ourselves. If you don't have inclusion or equity, what's that called? It's tokenism. You must have inclusion first, a culture of inclusion first, followed by equity, before you bring in diversity. That's where you get to say the well-being. Inclusion, equity, then diversity. So that when you bring people in, they have a seat at the table, voices are heard, better milieu to get things done. Today, we bring a cautionary tale that should make us reflect on how effectively the spaces and organizations we work in adequately employ the concepts of inclusion, equity, and diversity to everyone. I speak with an individual whose experience has impacted her professional life and motivated her to tell her story so others who may have had or be having similar experiences can know they're not alone. We also speak with an individual who has real, practical experience, perspective, and expertise in DEI. It helps us contextualize and operationalize what an appropriate response should be when faced with similar situations. Because this is a true account of recent past events, names and identifying facts have been redacted to protect the identities of the individuals and organizations involved and so we can really get at the heart of what happened and try to address the core concepts it provokes us to consider and hopefully internalize so that we can effectively employ them ourselves. This is Sight for Sore Eyes, where we discuss issues of diversity in ophthalmology with a minority perspective. These conversations may not always be comfortable, but they are necessary in order to provide context and perspective and form a foundation on which we can build a better paradigm. Perception is reality, but perspective is the key. Tonight I have Dr. Vandana Reddy and Dr. Lynn Gordon. Thank you for joining me and welcome to Sight for Sore Eyes. Can you please tell us a bit about your backgrounds in ophthalmology and where you current practice? And I'll start with you, Dr. Reddy. I'm a solo practitioner. I started my own practice about three years ago. I'm a cornea cataract surgeon. I've been in practice about 10 years. Wonderful. Dr. Gordon? Thanks so much. I'm actually on the other end of my professional life. I'm a professor emeritus at UCLA at the Jules Stein Eye Institute. Clinically, I was a neuro-ophthalmologist, and I'm still very active in the Neuro-Ophthalmology Society. In addition to practicing medicine and doing some science, I was the inaugural Senior Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA for more than 10 years prior to my retirement. Dr. Gordon continues to actively participate in the North American Ophthalmology Society, or NANOS, serving as a board member and as the chair of the DEI committee, on which I also serve as her vice chair. Thank you again for joining me. 
For you, Vandana, you've had a DEI-related experience in your professional life recently that I think is important to share as a cautionary tale for everybody who works with others in an organizational or professional setting that I think needs to be told. Can you please tell us about it? Sure. Thank you for this opportunity to be involved um, in these important topics, because oftentimes we talk about DEI, but no one really talks about what happens when we try to implement or uphold those values. So in my, I was co-chair of our um, CME committee, our educational committee, and I attempt, attempted to implement DEI objectives for speaker selection. In all of this, I learned my CME co-chair mistakenly thought of me as a secretary or assistant as opposed to his co-chair. So this ultimately was an example of implicit gender bias, and which was the underlying root cause of the conflict. After unsuccessfully attempting to resolve these issues with my CME co-chair, I reported to the, the instances of gender harassment in the form of email communications and verbal comments. The bottom line is that they acknowledged the problem in writing, but for six months didn't take any action. When it did peak, some issues and conflicts were occurring with me and the co-chair. They stated they did not want to get involved and coordinated for a mediation to occur with the co-chair. However, overall, they chose to remove me and my name one week before the CME meeting from the programming. One month after the meeting, I was removed from my CME co-chair position. And I learned by not being invited that I was removed from all other committee positions. The director instructed the committee to not communicate with me. And this is a committee of physicians. The male colleague, however, was protected. In fact, a year later was invited to give lectures at these meetings. I'm giving a very brief synopsis of what happened. But ultimately, even though there was admission of bias, it still resulted in the action of, you know, removing me for vocalizing concerns in an organization. So that's a lot to, to unpack there. Thanks for sharing. When you say your co-chair thought you were his assistant, was there any reason for him to believe that you were his assistant based on the structure of your relationship? the project you were working on, the understanding of the roles and responsibilities laid out by uh, the CME program? That's a great question because that was something if you had asked me, I said we were co-chairs. If you asked him, I was his assistant. Very clearly, it was laid out that we were co-chairs. It was published online. It was signed in emails that we were co-chairs if we invited a speaker. Um, there was no question of the titles and the responsibility, but there was this assumption that I'm the assistant or secretary. From an objective standpoint, I had been on the CME committee for six years where he had not been. I had positive reviews, positive evaluations, feedback for all the meetings I had planned. From an experience standpoint, I had more experience. I can't really speak for him, but I think he just made the assumption that I was the assistant to him. Maybe it was because a few years age difference. Maybe it was the way I look, gender. I I can't really speak for him. He couldn't really give an answer. When it was kind of directly confronted, he he couldn't really explain other than he just made the assumption. And you're both MDs. Correct. Okay. So moving forward past that misidentification of you as an assistant, when you brought this up to the powers that be, how did you bring it up? And 
how was it initially received? So early on, I tried to directly address it with the co-chair, but it was blown off and labeled as overreactive. And also there were emails about, I think it ended up being that there were three female speakers for our invited speakers just after all the invites went through and who accepted. So there was concerns that there were too many women. It told me that he may not have understood, you know, what the intent of DEI was or that that's actually not a bad thing per se, that we're actually giving more opportunities to people who may not have always had those opportunities to speak in these in these forums. So I realized very early on that, hey, this needs to be addressed. So I did bring it to the attention of these. And this was about six months, seven months before this meeting. And they they said they agreed with me and they would talk to him. However, this is where part of the conflict escalated because I was under the exception it was being addressed. However, the behavior worsened. And when I went again, I probably went like three, four times once was in person to these, and they assured me that they would be handled. And other times were a series of text messages or emails. Again, I was assured it was being handled. So I definitely brought it up. There weren't any questions of it being brought up. And I brought it up with the as well after I noticed after three, four months, nothing was really changing. And again, was, I was told it would be handled. And I was very, very surprised to learn after this kind of peaked and a conflict escalated that it had not been addressed because I directly asked the co-chair, has anyone talked to you? Because that's not very fair to him either (laughs) to, you know, if you don't know it's a problem, how do you fix it, right? Like, how do you address it? So it just became sort of uncomfortable for everybody to address what I thought was a very straightforward, simple conversation with this person. But it made things so uncomfortable to do that, they rather, it felt like they would, they were more comfortable with just saying to me, or just, you know, kind of p- brushing it under the rug, so to speak, oh, it'll go away or something. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that right, but it's, it, it's almost like that made them more comfortable than addressing it. And if you look at the demographics of the committee, it's a diverse group that you would think would understand what was kind of going on. I, I thought I kind of knew my audience. So I didn't think this would be a very complex discussion, just like a, you know, that they would kind of ask him and say, hey, just to clarify, she's also the co-chair. You guys need to, you know, respect each other's ideas and work together or point out what was going on. You know, hey, this is a form of uh, implicit gender bias, these emails that you're sending or these comments that you're making. But that's not what happened. I guess they thought it would go away. But then when it kind of came to a head, their response was really, really surprising to me, which was to remove me from a meeting that I planned. 90% probably for that meeting. And then I basically sat in the audience at my own meeting, like the agendas I planned, my name was removed, all the work I had done. And then I kind of was like, well, let me just let this, let let everybody sort of process what happened. And I was really surprised to learn a few weeks after that, that I was removed. And then kind of removed from the organization after that, from all the committee position. And in this process, the director told the physicians not to speak to me. These are previous colleagues that I've worked with at different places, people I sometimes hung out with. They were not allowed to communicate. When you said you brought this up to certain individuals who had a place of authority over the situation and his behavior continued, what specific behavior 
would you say has led to your concerns? We didn't really unpack that earlier. I wanted to bring some light onto what that was. So, for example, certain phrases, like if we were having a conversation, there'd be comparisons to his wife, comparisons to his young daughter. If I tried to bring up examples of how we need to diversify our panels, there'd be comments about I was being too sensitive or, you know, overly emotional, concerns that there were too many females in the speaker list. Ultimately, why this peaked is there was removal of me from my speaking roles in the program by the co-chair. So then I've tried to address it with its so I, and again, he was coming from a place where he thought he was in charge and that I was the assistant. So that's why he was doing what he was doing. And, you know, to be fair to him, he apologized, didn't recognize what he was doing. And he felt bad that I was dealing with that for six months. He was making a lot of unilateral decisions with the meeting. And he acknowledged, you know, you planned most of this meeting and you know, all this stuff kind of came out. But again, he was working under the assumption that he was in charge and I was the assistant. So ultimately, he did realize that maybe he wasn't being as fair as he should have been I, at the I end think of the day. Once it came to a head, I think he said he did. But again, it was very it was hard for us to understand how he thought that because it was clearly defined our, our labels. But he in his head felt that that's what was going on. At least that's what he said. And he did apologize. I want to ask you. Dr. Gordon, you're hearing the story and you have experience in DEI and, and in the workplace and professional organizations in general. Have you encountered situations like this before in your experience? Well, unfortunately, I've encountered a lot of different types of situations in the years of doing this kind of work. I'm certainly distressed by hearing this story and concerned about the impact that it's had on you. Dr. Reddy, in, in terms of your career, your goals, your aspirations. And often when this type of situation occurs, it's hard to get adjudication that makes you feel better. And, and certainly in this case, I wouldn't expect that you felt much better even after the apology. But I'd like to speak to a couple of things because some of the words that you've touched on really define what we talk about when people are subjected to microaggressions or macroaggressions, right? Microaggressions doesn't mean small. It, it, so we, we often confuse that micro with small. Certainly that's what, that's what it means, but not in the sense of a microaggression. Um, it's repeated insults that happen over and over. And too often, the individuals that call attention to those words or language are accused of overreacting or being too sensitive, or they didn't really mean it, or they meant it as a joke. And why aren't you laughing? Or why aren't you agreeing with them? You know, why are you reacting this way? And I think when we hear these stories, and unfortunately they still occur, the first thing we should be thinking about is how can we help support the person who has been aggrieved, the person who is the victim or the target of that language? So how can we support them in their journey? And then 
what can we do to change the paradigm to make it as right as we can possibly make it? No, I definitely agree. And one thing that struck me is the way you describe the situation doesn't really leave much room for a gray area of interpretation. And that you brought this to individuals that you expected to understand what was going on. And it doesn't seem like you got an explanation as to the reasons why the decisions that were ultimately made were made to take you out of the organizational program, what you had planned, you didn't get to present. I'm not sure I understand the reasoning behind that. And for anybody who is going through a similar experience or who feels that we're in a certain time of, you know, society, these things don't happen. I think this serves as a lesson that we need to be vigilant and we need to be intentional about how we think about how people are treated, perceived, and like Dr. Gordon said, really try to provide recourse that makes everybody in the situation as whole as possible. So going back to the situation, Vandana, you said that you had been removed and you hadn't had communication with the organization. Is that the way things continue to stand to this day? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I didn't, I thought I was just removed from the chair position for that committee. I thought maybe I was still on the committee or the other committees I sit on, but I learned just by not being invited and people saying, Hey, where are you? That they removed me from all of it, like everything. And this was actually my leadership development project. It was on DEI and implementing it in societies. And they had agreed to giving data, but after this incident, they did not give data. And then leadership had to get involved, but there was no response even from these five physicians. And eventually I was able to get some data, but it was an incomplete data set. So I had to sort of change gears. So it, it did continue on. The behavior continued and it still continues. And it's, it's interesting, this whole victim blaming, it makes zero sense to me, but I guess it's something that's very common. It makes them so uncomfortable to address the issue at hand. It's easier to just say she's the problem. She's, you know, dramatic or she's making up these issues. It's more comfortable to say that for most people in most cultures. So, um, but yeah, it, it continues. You just sort of pivot. And I did my LDP project on, on, on what happened, you know, and, and discuss like, wh- how do we prevent this? And I, I don't know a good response because it was really eye-opening to me to hear people in the organization who I very much respect as ophthalmologists say things to me like, there's women in this organization, so there's no such thing as gender bias. There's no such thing as bias. Well, we have minorities in leadership. There's a, there's a woman in leadership, so there's no such thing as bias. Very well-respected ophthalmologists were saying this to me, and I was like, huh? I didn't even understand how they thought that, but that is probably what people think even now, right. even after all these words and discussions and awareness and everything. 
And it's something that these are what I call DEI myths that thinking that, oh, just because you went through a DEI training means that your organization's immune to it. It doesn't mean that not. people think that, again, because there's women in the organization, there's no such thing as bias. If there's minorities, there's no such thing as bias. People fail to realize that it's not just that person that exists, like that tokenism that we've discussed before. It's how is that person treated when they do raise an issue? If they deviate from their expected role, it could be a deviation from an expected gender role. You know, just put your head down, do what you're told, and you can be promoted <laughs> into this position. So you have to question, well, yeah, there's women in leadership. There are women present. They're still a minority, but they're present. But then in order to be a part of this organization, what role are they fulfilling or what 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 are they sort of gearing towards culturally? Like, are they supporting the patriarchy with their behavior? Or are they not? So that's still like something that needs to be dissected and discussed. But I think the average ophthalmologist is still sort of stuck thinking that, oh, there's women, so it's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that a little bit. And then Dr. Gordon, obviously, would love you to un unpack some of that a little bit. But the concept of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, it's sort of the the backwards way you're supposed to lay the groundwork for bringing inclusion. You start with inclusion, right? Bring people in, and then you set up a culture of equity where people are brought in, their thoughts, their ideas, their points of view matter, and then you bring in the diversity into that milieu so that it works. And when you bring in people, when you have people in situations where the groundwork hasn't been purposefully, you know, intentionally laid, you tend to get situations like this. And, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, uh, Dr. Gordon. You're 100% right. Both of you are 100% right. First of all, we are all biased. We are biased from early life. And you're right that although we've implemented these trainings in many situations, first of all, it's not one and done. And in fact, it's been proven that you take one course, that doesn't change the culture. You need a multi-pronged approach to really change culture and create these inclusive environments. But I'd also like to go back and unpack a little bit about organizations. Because organizations are not perfect, right? And in the best of circumstances, when there are these types of issues, for example, gender issues in an institution where we would get Title IX involved, or race or ethnicity issues, and we would get other groups involved at a large organizational level, in the best of circumstances, those can be very disheartening processes for people going through it, both for the, I'm just going to call them the perpetrator right now, although that's a pretty harsh word, so I'm admitting that it's a harsh word, or the accused, and the person who was the target. And I try not to use victim here. It's often victimized, but I, I don't, I, I'm trying not to attribute that type of language. So let's use tar target and, and, perp and perpetrator potentially. That it's a painful process for both individuals 
And there's data that the people that are targets aren't very happy about the outcomes of these investigations. So when resolutions occur, they occur sort of at a snail's pace. I, I think of it as geologic time, not cataract surgery time. And the outcomes aren't often that satisfactory. And so smaller organizations are less equipped to deal with these things, right? If large organizations can't get it really right, then how can we expect smaller organizations to do it? I think one needs to have clarity in responding to allegations in terms of expectations, impact, and outcomes. And honestly, I think that that can't be done internally within an organization. They need to bring in some expertise. And there's lots of expertise in every major city in the country. There are people that think about these things, that are passionate about these issues. And then the other aspect of this that I want to bring up or introduce is this idea of humility. We talk about cultural humility as opposed to cultural competence because nobody can be culturally competent. But cultural humility is having the opportunity to take a step back, inquire, ask, be non-judgmental, certainly to try to identify what are the thoughts, what are the opinions, what are the issues, what are the feelings. And then you can try to understand where the other person is and bring them forward. The last thing I want to talk about is conflict resolution. There was a conflict. How could that conflict have been resolved in a much more productive way that would have allowed both you and the other co-chair to come out of it better? And I think that's the missed opportunity when these types of issues happen. There was an opportunity to keep you in the fold and adjudicate this in a way where both parties could come out feeling whole. That's gold. That was absolutely spot on and some great lessons to to learn. The opportunity to grow and learn and make yourself better because that's what we all should be trying to do, right? If we were 10 years ago, isn't who we are today, isn't who we're going to be 10 years from now. If you want to be a certain person 10 years from now, how do we grow into that person that we want to become? I think that was, that was very well said. That's our episode for today. Stay tuned for the next episode, where we'll learn about the origins of Dr. Reddy's interest in DEI, the lessons she's learned from her cautionary tale, and what she proposes as potential solutions to prevent similar situations moving forward. I think just looking back at my whole life, it's always been an interest from a very young age because I think access and exposure is really important and not everybody has that. We'll also hear some final thoughts from Dr. Gordon about how to address DEI-related conflicts when they arise in our professional lives. And so being intentional, being thoughtful, taking the time to understand what are the issues, bringing two people together, I think would go a a really far way in terms of making our organizations and our workplaces better. As always, thanks for listening. 
take care of yourself and see you next time.